He is worthy. He's worthy of our witness. He's worthy of our faithfulness. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our attention. Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your steadfast mercies that are new every morning. Thank you, Father, that uh, you have promised to uphold us. Thank you for your passion for us. And thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that as we look into your word this morning, as we encompass what is a fairly large piece of history in a few short words, that you will speak to our hearts, that we will see Jesus more clearly than we ever have, that we will, in learning more, be more aware of you, who you are, that we will follow you more closely and more nearly, that by increasing the things that we know, you will increase our faith in you, our trust in you, our confidence in you, and as Cody just saying, that you will increase our witness of you to those around us, our family, our friends, our community, and the world. Father, you're good, and we love you. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, this morning we're looking at the childhood of Christ. As you're aware, we've been studying, or we are going to be studying in depth as we go through this whole year, the life of Jesus Christ. We just talked about Christmas and Christ coming into the world and this morning, I'm, I've got just a few minutes to cover 30 years of Jesus' life. You think we can do it? Right. And yes, those of you who say no are very wise. Yeah. Uh, but I do want us to, to just begin looking at Jesus as a child because most of us, apart from Ricky Bobby, and we won't get into all of that, but most of us don't think of Jesus as a child. And what his childhood and what his infanthood might have been like. And there are many amazing children that have been born, but Jesus was a child like no other. That's the name of this message I've chosen to call it this morning, a child like no other. Now, there have been many amazing children. Probably one of the most famous or well-known is Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, who began playing the harpsichord at age three. He learned to play his first piece of music three days before his fifth birthday, and he began writing music, writing complex music at five years old. That's a pretty amazing child. Many of you may know or at least be familiar with Kim Ung-young, a Korean young man born in 1962, and he was a prodigy by every standard. He could carry on complete conversations at six months old. He knew Japanese, Korean, German, and English by the time he was four. He could do math sums by the time he was 18 months, and he was doing complex calculus by the time he was five. They tried to test his IQ, and it was off the scales. Uh, then, of course, and there are many. We could go down the list. There, there, there are many exceptional children. American genius Gregory Smith was born in 1990. He had an eidetic memory. Are you familiar with that? He had a photographic memory. He, uh, he could memorize and recite books by the time he was 14 months old. Again, he could do sums by 18 months he went of age. He went from second to eighth grade in one year. Second to eighth grade in one year. He began high school at the age of seven, graduating in two years with honors. He entered college at 10. He majored in mathematics, minored in history and biology, and began his master's at 14 years of age. Pretty impressive. But don't we all think our kids are special? And, and aren't they? As I was reflecting over these young geniuses, I was thinking about Chrissy, my oldest girl, middle child, when she was a toddler looking up at me and saying, Dad, 
the worms yawn? That's a genius question, right? As a matter of fact, uh, Cindy Ballard shared about her granddaughter asking her just the other day, Guy, are horses allergic to peaches? And Cindy said, I don't think I know any horses that are allergic to peaches. And, of course, Ruthie saying, well, that would be sad if you knew some that were. All of our kids are precious and all of our kids are valuable. I want you to understand that. But we're looking at a, a specific child here. We're looking at a child like no other. And we're just going to walk through this passage. And we're going to look at some of the things that Luke, Dr. Luke, the historian, who served with Paul, who was a missionary, who did research, recorded about this childhood. And it's just recorded in this one chapter about this childhood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the first point's really a review. We've already seen that Jesus was unique in His coming. We've seen that there were prophecies that were foretold all the way from Genesis chapter 3. Some 4,000 years before he was born. Uh, some of these prophecies are clear, like Micah uh, chapter 5. He's going to be born in um, Bethlehem. Or like Isaiah, he's going to uh, specific prophecies about where and when he's going to be born. He's going to be born of a virgin. And some of them are, are uh, less clear. Some of them you don't know that they're actually prophecies that are talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Until Christ came... And they looked back and said, and this was to fulfill. And look at this prophecy that was completed or fulfilled in the coming of Christ. There are some 300 prophecies relating to the coming of the Messiah. Some clearly stated, some less clear references that we didn't know about until they were fulfilled. But he was unique like that. He was unique in the promises and the prophecies. He's unique in his conception he was born a virgin. We looked at this when we looked at Luke chapter 1. Mary bore Jesus, but Joseph did not contribute to his conception. In Gabriel's phrase and his conversation with Mary in chapter 1, verse 35 of Luke's gospel, he told her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born, therefore, for this reason, because of this, the way that he's being conceived, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Now, don't overlook the word holy. What Luke is recording here is that this is a child like no other. This is a man like no other. This is eternal God. As we saw last week when we looked at the Gospel of John, chapter 1, this is eternal God invading history and becoming a human. What is foretold is happening. His mother is Mary. His father is God, and this child is born without sin, without the Adamic nature, the nature of Adam. As by one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so all, so all will die for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Do you remember Romans chapter 5? You, and you recognize that Jesus is unique in this. Born without sin, fully God and fully human at the same time. It's what Luke is explaining to his friend Theophilus to under, so that he can understand this unique nature of Jesus and therefore to us. That he and Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God. And the way that Luke does this, is makes sense, he presents witnesses. We have a whole slew of witnesses. You have Mary, this young teenager that Gabriel appeared to, who was devout and righteous and engaged and concerned, and yet she was willing to be used by God to give birth to this child. You have Joseph. 
who is also a young, devout Jewish man, faithful to God, wanting to glorify God, looking for the consolation. We'll get to this in a moment, hopefully. Looking at the, for the consolation of Israel. He was a devout Jew, engaged to this young woman, minded to honor her and to, 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 to deal the best that he could with the awkward situation. And yet, God revealed to him as well that this child was like no other. This was the Son of God, Emmanuel. God with us. But Luke doesn't start with Mary and Joseph. Luke starts with Mary's cousin, Elizabeth, and her husband, Zechariah. Country priest, open age. He lived out in the country, but he would come back into Jerusalem for two weeks out of every year to serve his temple duties, making sacrifices and fulfilling his responsibilities. Zechariah and Elizabeth had had no children. And Gabriel, an angel, appeared to him while he was serving God in the temple and said, you're going to have one because your child is going to be the prophet that was foretold back in Malachi chapter 3. The prophet who's coming to make way, the make way for the Lord, to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. Zechariah's testimony about Jesus after his son John, who we know as John the Baptist was born, is found in chapter 1 verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Zechariah, the child that is coming, not my son John, this one that is coming, Jesus, the Messiah. He is the horn of salvation. Elizabeth had her testimony as well. You remember Mary was rushing to meet Elizabeth. They were both pregnant. And Elizabeth spoke up and said, how is this that I should be honored by a visit from the mother of our Savior? And, and uh, she went on to say, blessed are you among women, Mary, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And it is a wonder that it is granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me. And she went on to explain that when she heard her voice, the child, John, Moved, jumped in her womb. We have Zechariah, we have Elizabeth, we have Mary, we have Joseph, and we also have the shepherd's testimony. Earlier in chapter 2, you guys will remember, that they went to, came to Bethlehem, Joseph and Mary, there they gave birth, and the angel appeared to the shepherds in the field, and the shepherds, the, the testimony of the angel to the shepherds was, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Well, was for, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then that became the testimony of the shepherds. You remember that they came and visited the child and to see that these things were true. Eyewitnesses. They were there. And then they went out and shared all that they had. They made known the saying, all that they had been told them concerning this child. And they went back different than when they came. They went back glorifying God. And so today we pick up at Luke chapter 2, verse 21. And I want us to get some clarification on the events that were taking place. He is unique in his coming. In Luke chapter 2, verse 21, we have Mary and Joseph, probably still in a stable or at least in temporary housing. We have the babe that has been born, the shepherds that have been come, that have come and then that have left. There's a little bit of an uproar at least, and I don't know how many of you have had an eight-day-old child, but there's some stress with having an eight-day-old child. And if you're a Jewish person and your child is a male at eight days, by Mosaic law, he is to be circumcised on the eighth day. Now, this was, this was a commandment that was given. And so Mary and Joseph, very devout, really seeking to serve God with all their heart and their being, now being chosen by God for this special task, they're careful to observe the commandment of circumcision 
on the eighth day. And they formally pronounced his name at that time. He was called Jesus, the name that was given to them by the angel even before he was consumed. That was what was done. It was established, the circumcision was established in the tradition of the Jews to identify them as God's people, and it was part of their covenant. So get this, they're still in Bethlehem. They're still in a stable or temporary housing. The baby's just eight days old. He's just been circumcised. But then the next verse moves us on just a little bit further. It says, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, let me just kind of give you a picture of what's happening. In the Old Testament law, when a woman gave birth to a child, she was ceremonially unclean because of the issue of blood, because of other things that took place with that. And so there was a period of time that they had to, be, had to wait before she could actually be allowed back into the temple. And so there was this process of purification, 40 days, a little over a month. But there was also something that had to be done for every firstborn Jewish child. They had to be brought to the temple. And they had to be presented unto the Lord. Do you guys remember the story in the Old Testament of Hannah asking God for a child and God gave her Samuel and she brought Samuel to the temple? There's this whole practice that was in place, firmly in place by this time, that the Jewish firstborn son had to be brought to the temple. And there was a ransom price, if you will, a rescue price. It was five shekels of silver that was given in lieu of leaving the boy in the temple. And this was common practice. You didn't have to go to the temple to do this. It was, just, it was symbolic as much as anything else. But it was important to note that, again, Mary and Joseph, being devout, being followers of the law, 40 days went to the temple for purification and for the presentation of Christ and, and to pay the ransom price. A mother who had born a child, again, had to go through a purification ceremony. And so here, Luke, while they're at that temple, this is 40 days later. They're still in Bethlehem. They've traveled to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem. Luke gives us two more witnesses. And I want to just refresh our memory on this. There was a man who was there. His name was Simeon. Now, what we, we know a little bit about Simeon, not a whole lot. We know that he was righteous. We know that he worshiped God. And I do want to kind of give you this picture. Sometimes we think of all Jewish, as Jewish people as God's chosen people and that they're all devout. But I want you to know that that is no more true of them in that age than it is true of people who claim Christianity or people who claim any other denomination. Now, you have some who are devout. You have some who are really worshiping God, really want to know God. They're looking for the promises of God. And, and as he has described, he's looking for the consolation of Israel, God's promised Messiah. He's waiting and expecting that. As a matter of fact, Simeon, in his righteousness, in his search seeking out God, in his communion with God, God has spoken to Simeon. And he said, that which I've prophesied, the rescue, the Messiah, the anointed one, that which you've heard about for centuries is going to come true, and you get to see it firsthand. As a matter of fact, you won't die physically until you hold the promised one in your hand. Simeon, old man, having received this promise. I don't know how it happened. People are moving around the temple. Mary and Joseph are there. They're carrying this baby, 48 days old, 40 days old. You know, uh, everybody goes up to babies. I don't, I don't know how, how the dynamic, to, but I do know this. The Holy Spirit had directed Simeon to Joseph and to Mary in the temple when she came for her ceremony of purification. 
And Simeon becomes a witness that this is a child like no other. Let's look just really quickly at what he says. Simeon took Jesus up in his arms. By the way, that's a great phrase. We'll come back to that hopefully in verse 28. And he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. I'm ready to go. <laughs> According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all people. And so basically just simply saying what you've promised has come true and you've let me see it. And I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. This is what my life has been about. And now here's the culmination of it. But then he says something that's a little bit shocking for most of the Jews that were there. Should not have been, but it was. He says that this child is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Most of the people in that day that were Jewish that were looking for the consolation of Israel, they were looking for the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the deliverer, the son of God, the son of man. All of these prophecies... They really focused on Jews and what it meant for the Jewish nation. And yet, again and again throughout the Old Testament with Isaiah and with Jeremiah, with many of the shorter prophets that we have recorded in the Old Testament, you have the broadening of the scope that Jesus comes not only to save Israel, he comes to save the world. He comes to save Jew and Gentile alike. Simeon reflects that in his statement. Mary and Joseph were there. Now, surely they're astounded. By the way, what a whirlwind. You need to take some time when you get time. You need to take some time. Just think about what Mary and Joseph were going through. Pregnant, giving birth in a stable after an 80-mile trip. Shepherds coming, doing, visited by angels, being devout. And all the prophecies have been good. All the prophecies have been God is coming to the world. The Savior has come. The promise is being kept. All the prophecies are being good. But Joseph and his, mother were, and his mother marveled at what was said about this baby Jesus. And Simeon blessed them. And, but then he looked, turned to Mary. And it's very specific here. He didn't turn to Joseph. He turned to Mary, his mother. And I think this is reasonable because sometime between the time jo Jesus is 12 and 30, when he begins his ministry, Joseph leaves the scene. The, the most common understanding is that he passed away sometime during that period of time. But Mary's there when Jesus begins his ministry, and she's there all the way through the cross and after. And here's what Simeon says. Bless, behold, this child is appointed for the fall. That's eternal fall. That's destruction. And the rising, that's salvation, of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed this is the first time we have a specific prophecy that's negative that warns of the pain and the agony and the difficulty that is to come now mary and joseph are marveling and they're thinking you've got the testimony of all that we've mentioned and then simeon the righteous and devout man but now we meet someone else it's important to note i think that uh, in the presence of two or more witnesses. <laughs> and so Luke brings more than two witnesses. If you go through Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph and the uh, shepherds, much less the angels and angelic host. Now he comes to Simeon and he comes to a lady named Anna. Verse 36, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, 
of the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years. She was an old lady. She had been married for seven years, but then her husband had died, and rather than remarrying, she just kind of moved into the temple and gave her whole life in service there to the Lord. And now she was 84 years old. Any 84-year-olds here? I, I'm just wondering. I want, I want to give you an idea uh, of, of what these ages actually look like. My mom's 86, and so that'll give you some idea. I am not 84, but I feel like it some days. But she's an 84-year-old woman in the first century, and she's faithfully serving God in the temple, staying there day and night, fasting and praying and worshiping. And she, too, bears witness that this baby that Mary and Joseph are walking around the temple with is, is the Son of God, and she calls him the redemption of Jerusalem. So we've got all these witnesses, and we've got this timeline. Now, I do want us to bring this, and all of this is by way of introduction. So just hold on. We're going to go fast, all right? Hopefully. Uh, verse 39, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Now, if you think I'm leaving a lot out, Somewhere between that first clause and that second clause, in verse 39, we have Matthew chapter 2. We have the Magi coming to Herod, asking where the child was born. We have them traveling to Bethlehem, to the house where the child lay. So sometime between the time he was an infant, 40 years old, and becomes a toddler, we know that because of the age group that Herod kind of killed the children, the desolation there, two years old and younger. Sometime over the next several months, the wise men come. We also know that, I think timeline-wise, that the wise men, you know they weren't at the stable, right? You know this was, this was months later. Uh, Jesus had already been circumcised on the eighth day. He'd already been presented at the temple. They'd already moved into some sort of house. They've already made their offering, which was two turtle doves, which was a poor man's offering. But when the wise men come, they bring, come bringing a treasure trove. They bring casks of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then we have the flight to Egypt. And then we have the return. And rather than coming back to Bethlehem, rather than coming back close to, to Jerusalem, because Herod's son is now ruling there, they go back up to Galilee and back up to Nazareth. So we've got a lot of time here between that first clause and that phrase that says they return to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And then the next phrase, verse 40, talks about the first 12 years of his life. And the child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Jesus, at one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old, and four and five years old, and six years old, and seven and eight, he continued to grow physically. But I want you to know he was a child like no other. In a human brain, and in a human mind, learning all the things that humans learn. Yet he also had the mind of God. Talking about a prodigy beyond that. He encompassed more than any person ever has, even as a child. It's important to grasp and understand when we talk about the child becoming strong, physically strong, no sin nature, not under any curse. He became strong. He became filled with wisdom. You know that he studied the scriptures. Every Jewish home, the scriptures were taught regularly. And you know that Jesus devoured them as a young child. And the favor of God was upon him. And then Jesus becomes 12 years old. I know we got a couple of 12-year-olds here. EJ's 12, right? Henry's 12. Who else is 12? 
Jermichael, 12? All right. Anybody else 12 years old? Caleb is 12. Who else is 12? Who am I? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Isaiah is 12. I didn't realize you were 12. Great. So we've got 12-year-olds. Am I missing somebody? Everybody's pointing. Oh, I'm sorry. Noah, are you 12 as well? All right. Wow, we got a bunch of 12-year-olds in the room. All right. I want to tell you a story about a 12-year-old. And I'm going to kind of leave my notes and just kind of talk through this. Will you let me do that in the interest of time? And to kind of boil this down to what took place, I'm going to summarize what we've already read. Mary and Joseph were very devout, and the Jews every year went to Jerusalem, 80 miles, not in a car, not in a bus, but walking or in a wagon or on the back of an animal. Four days. If you average 20, 25 miles a day, four days. And the Jews didn't go from Galilee to Jerusalem because Samaria was in the middle. (laughs) And so they typically went around the shores of Galilee and came down the east side and then jumped back across to Jerusalem. Four days. They didn't travel by themselves. They traveled with all the other Jewish families who were coming. Now, I will tell you, it's mostly men. Because the Passover is required for the men, not so for the women. And so the women that typically made the trip with their families were the most devout families and the most devout of women. And both of the Jewish schools, Hillel and Shimei, recommended that the children go with, particularly the children who were approaching 13 years of age, particularly the boys who were approaching 13 years of age. Because when a Jewish boy becomes 13 years old, he's not a kid anymore. He's a man. When a Jewish boy becomes 13 years old, he begins to work and prepare a place to live on his own often working with his father. And that may happen immediately, but it may not happen for years. But the mindset changes. This is no longer someone who is responsible to the parents for keeping the commands of God. This is now a man responsible to God for keeping the commands of God. We have no concept in our culture, in our society today, the expectations that were placed upon a Jewish boy. You guys heard of bar mitzvah? That means son of the law. At that point, it's a, cult, it's a system that came into practice later. At that age, it's a transition from I am not accountable. My parents aren't accountable for my obedience to God. Now I am accountable for my obedience to God. So it's a big deal. Twelve years old, big deal. Twelve years because thirteen. The next year, this boy is no longer a boy. He's now a man. And they traveled in big crowds. And they traveled together when they came. Now Passover, Passover celebrates. Freedom, deliverance from Egyptian slavery. Remember Moses? Remember the ten plagues? And the tenth plague, the blood of the lamb had to be put over the door of the house. And then those who did not, the firstborn son died. They delivered the, God delivered the Jews. They were led out across the Red Sea. And the Egyptian army was encompassed by the water and defeated afterwards. And they went out into the well. That, that deliverance, that last meal was set up as a tradition by God for the Jews. It's called Passover. It's one day. But after Passover, that one day, comes seven days of feasting, seven days of celebration, seven days of worship. And so the tradition was the Jews would come to Jerusalem. They'd spend the day. If their family was there with them, they would enjoy the Passover feast. And one of the traditions was the firstborn son would ask 
his father this, and they still do today. What makes this night different from all others? And the father then begins to celebrate the history of a God who saves and a God who redeems. And then there's this time of celebration. And so this is what's taking place. And in Jerusalem, it's crowded. It's, it, it's, it's worse than fall for Greenville on Main Street. Because one of the things that happens is sacrifices are made by all these families that come. One historian, I found this fascinating, said that as many as 250,000 lambs were sacrificed in this one day in Jerusalem. Astonishing. Now, I want you to imagine with me 12-year-old Jesus with Joseph and with Mary. Actually, probably with the kids as they came into town. All the kids marched at the front, the women in the middle, the men at the back to provide protection. But as they came into town and he's with this crowd and he's with his friends and he's with his family, and there are thousands of people around, the noise, the confusion, there's the smell of blood, there's the beating, bleating of lambs, the ba-ba-ing of lambs. And there's this hectic, frenetic activity and they worship the Passover together. Mary and Joseph don't leave the first day. They stay for the celebration afterwards, seven days. And when the time was fulfilled, it was time for them to go back. They're getting ready to go home. And they just all get in a group and head toward the house. And at the end of the first day of travel, they've been on the road for a day, 20, 25 miles down the road, a day's travel. They come together as a family, and Jesus isn't there. The Bible simply says he stayed in the temple. Now, this wasn't rebellion. Jesus was not a rebel. Certainly not in that sense. This was not rebellion. This was, this was not uh, an act of disobedience. And this certainly wasn't Mary and Joseph's fault. Jesus was a perfect child. He'd never been disobedient ever. But their expectations were different. Alarmed as they should be, when they couldn't find him among the crowd that they were traveling with, they got up the next morning and they made the trip back to Jerusalem. And there they spent a day in Jerusalem looking for Jesus and there they find him finally. And he's sitting around with the leaders and the teachers of his day. And he is asking them questions and he is teaching, talking. He's responding to their questions to him. And those folks are amazed at this child. And I really want to focus on this. We may make this a two-week sermon. I'm just going to tell you. Because we have the only recorded words of Jesus in his childhood. In that simple verse. Mary is a good mom. Okay. Hey, Jesus, why have you done this to us? <laughs> why have you treated us like this? We've been looking for you. And we have been so concerned. Great distress. And Jesus' reply to her is the only words that we have during his childhood that were recorded in Scripture and recorded by Luke. And it's a important for several reasons i'll just skip to it today we probably won't get able to come back to it in this context but i'll skip to it today but jesus looked at her as a 12 year old and says why were you looking for me did you not know that i must be in my father's house some translations say did you not know that i must be about my father's business and either one of those is good because there's no object there i must be in my father's is basically where the Greek stops. And so 
the inference is placed. I must be in his house, in his place, about his business. Now, what is the significance of this? Did Jesus know when he was 12 years old that he was God? He did. Did Jesus know when he was 12 years old why he had come? He did. Did Jesus understand his mission even as a 12, soon to be 13-year-old boy? He did. There's so many false teachings about Christ out there. So many false teachings about his childhood. So many false teachings about who he is and how he's made up, that he's just the firstborn of many, that he was a normal man, then the Spirit of God came upon him. And I've heard all this stuff. And I want to tell you, Luke is dispelling that. And he's saying, here's a child like no other. And he knew it. He knew his mission. He knew who he was. He was filled with all the fullness of God at 12 years old. And what he's doing now is he's beginning to tell his mother and father, Mary and Joseph, who are raising them, your role in my life is temporary. It's important, but it's temporary. And I believe that from this point on, his relationship with Mary and with Joseph changes. I think it's important that we grasp the difference that takes place. It's a break. It's a chain. change. Yes, I am your son, but now, soon to be a man, I have a task and a role that is outside of and beyond simply being the carpenter's son. Or simply being Mary's boy. I am the son of God. When Jesus said my father in this context. In this grammar. Grammatical structure. It was an unusual statement to make. God was the father of of Abraham's descendants. He was father of Israel. He was father of the nation. But no one claimed my father. In the personable way. That Jesus claimed it. In this response. I want you to imagine with me. If you will, the uh, Jesus experience in Jerusalem. He came knowing his mission. That's the third point. You should have that written down. I want you to imagine seeing the lamb slaughtered and knowing that you're the perfect lamb of God. And you've come to be slaughtered to take away the sins of the world. I want you to imagine hearing the noise of the crowds and knowing that one day they'll be clamoring for your death. As a 12-year-old boy. I want you to imagine being 12 years old. And not looking back. But looking forward. To another Passover that's coming. Another Passover celebration in this city. In this temple. With probably many of these same people. Where you will fulfill your purpose. Just outside the city of a cross. On the cross. Did you know. Did Jesus know he was God? Yes indeed. Did he know his purpose? Yes indeed. But here's what I want you to know. Jesus embraced it willingly. I get frustrated at people that convey God as reluctant to save or hesitant to save or unwilling to save. If you think God is reluctant or hesitant, unwilling to save, you need to get in the Bible again and again and again. You see, God is loving and gracious. Sure, He's just and He's honest and He exercises judgment. But He is always calling. He is always drawing. He is always redeeming. He, in this very instance, has invaded history in order that people might be saved. And this 12-year-old, looking forward to the fulfillment of his purpose, where he can say it is finished, is looking forward with joy. Certainly there's physical pain. Certainly there's an expectation that of all that he's going to go through. But he is doing it. 
remember he said, you don't take my life. What do you say? I lay it down willingly, enthusiastic to save. And he did it for you, and he did it for me. There's so much here. It's important to grasp. Jesus was a real boy, fully human, really God, fully divine, and from his conception to his death. Now, I do want to, can I fill in the fourth blank? Will you guys be okay if I do that really quick? Is it all right? I want to do that really quick. Because let me ask you a question. If God gave you a task to do to go die for someone so that they might be saved, my thinking would be, all right, let's see. If I can get there on Friday, Saturday, let people know I'm there. Opposition would be there immediately. We could go Sunday. We could do this in a weekend. Why do we have 30 years of his life recorded? As a matter of fact, the last verse, 52, says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God with man. That's from 12 years old to 30 to when he begins his ministry. So what's the significance there? Why did Jesus have to live a full life before he died? Why couldn't he just come and pay the penalty for our sins? I want to just share with you what I believe, and we can go to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8, and Hebrews chapter 5, verses 9, and talk about his need to be tempted in every manner like as we are, yet without sin. We can talk about the fact that Hebrews chapter 9 says he learned through suffering. I believe part of that was simply, that's not talking about his death, that's talking about his life, the experiences that he had as he lived and walked in the world. He was tempted just as we are, yet without sin. He lived perfectly righteously. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says it like this. Now God made him who knew no sin to become sin. Now that's important because what that means is God took the way I've lived my life with every sin, every thought, every deed, every rebellious part, every sin nature fruition that comes to me and he gave it to the Lord Jesus Christ he took my place God made him who knew no sin to become sin God God gave my life to him why in order that we might become the righteousness of God through him Christ lived a perfect life fully tempted just as we are yet no lies no dissimulation no hypocrisy no hatred Nothing, no sin, no rebellion. And he takes his perfect righteousness and he applies it to my life. And so Jesus stands before God in my place so that I can stand before God with his righteousness attributed to me. Isn't that an amazing thing? I think that's just an amazing thing. God treats me, he treats Jesus as if he had lived my life. And then because of grace, he treats me as if I had lived Jesus' life. So here's the statement. Jesus died to take my place before God. Jesus lived a righteous life so that we can take his place in standing before God. Listen, this is, that's about half the sermon. I don't know if I'm going to come back and finish it later or not. But man, what great truth about this child. Because even though Jesus' relationship with Mary and Joseph changed from this event in the temple... The Bible says he went on home with them. He remained submissive to them. He was raised by them. Mark chapter 3 leads us to believe that he worked in the carpenter with, at, at, with Joseph as a stonemason or carpenter or builder, whatever his task and his role was. And he did so. Tempted like every teenage boy is tempted in every aspect of life without sin in any of it so that he might 
be our perfect sacrifice and so that his righteousness might come to us. I hope you know him. This whole series is to reveal to you the truth that the scripture reveals to us about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the son of God. And even as a child, a child like no other, a child like no other in his coming, a child like no other in, in, in how he lived his mission in, 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 in his work, a child like no other in his development, a child like no other in his mission and his purpose. He came to be the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world that we might have life. I hope you know him. We'd love to introduce him to you personally. Father, I want to thank you just for the truth of who Jesus is as revealed in your word. And as we just kind of skim through this, there's so much more here that we can learn about Christ. But I pray that we'll learn this, that he's unique, that he is fully human with every hunger and every desire and every temptation, yet he is fully divine without sin in any of those things, with all the mind and the fullness of God, content in his physical body to dwell, he accomplished what you gave for him to accomplish. And that is that we might know him. He came to reveal you to us. We want to see your glory as revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. For those of us who are here, I pray that as Cody saying earlier, just in this service, that what we have witnessed, what we learned, we will share with others as well. That as Christ is the light of the world, we will be used to, to light the path, to light the truth, to a world that lives in darkness. We love you. In your name I pray. Amen.